college, and university. Colleges overall are not harder to get into today than they were in 1960. Indeed, the admissions competition among the bottom 90% of colleges, by selectivity, has remained steady or even eased over the past half-century. But elite colleges have become more competitive. The extent of the increase in admissions competition, moreover, grows in direct proportion to a college's selectivity in the early 1960s, with the very greatest increases coming at the very top schools, the Ivy League, Stanford, MIT, and a few others, where admissions are many times more competitive today than they were two generations ago. The competition that dominates the lives of elite parents and children is narrowly focused on these hyper-elite colleges and universities. The competition is also dominated by the very top high schools. When the 20 private high schools atop the Forbes ranking send 30% of their graduates to the Ivy League, Stanford, and MIT, they claim about a tenth of all the available places at these elite colleges. These schools, moreover, are virtually indistinguishable from a small group of others which offer equally intensive and elite educations to very similar student bodies with equivalent results. Fieldston, for example, did not make the Forbes Top 20, at least for the year reported, and Scarsdale High will never make the list, being nominally public. Simply tallying the colleges attended by graduates of 100 or perhaps 200 well-known and named elite high schools accounts for a third of the student bodies at the most prestigious colleges in the country. These high schools, again, overwhelmingly graduate children of very rich parents. Perhaps two-thirds of their graduates come from households in the top 5% of the income distribution. Even casual reflection, therefore, at once suggests that the richest children from the best high schools dominate the student bodies at elite colleges and universities. College expands the meritocratic inheritance, extending and exacerbating the inequality between the education and training received by children of rich parents and by middle-class children. Systematic study confirms this intuition. The percentage of Americans who earn a BA of any sort by age 29 has grown dramatically since the end of the Second World War, from 6% in 1947 to 24% in 1977 to 32% in 2011. But almost all of this increase has come from the top half of the income distribution. And the gap between the shares of rich and poor Americans to earn a BA grew by half between 1980 and 2010. Today, each additional increment in parents' income substantially increases the chances that a child will attend college, all the way up the income distribution. The effect of parental income on the odds of graduating rather than just attending college is greater still. Conditional on beginning college, the rich complete BAs at enormously and increasingly greater rates between two and a half and four times higher than the rest. Taken together, these effects entail that, as of 2016, 58% of Americans raised in households from the top quarter of the income distribution earned BAs by age 24, compared with only about 41% from the next quarter, 
20% from the second and 11% from the bottom. These differences matter not just for being absolutely so big, but also for their relative sizes. As with the distribution of educational investment through high school, so also in college graduation rates, the gap between rich and middle-class students substantially exceeds the gap between middle-class students and poor ones. The rich middle-class gap is also nearly double what it was in 1970. The rich enjoy a still greater relative advantage over the rest in attending and graduating from selective colleges or universities, and an especially great advantage at the most highly competitive and elite schools, although the absolute shares of students to attend are, of course, lower across all income classes. Even when poor students make it to college, they attend schools whose average quality lies at about the 35th percentile of all colleges. Middle-class students attend schools whose average quality falls just below the 50th percentile, and students from households in the richest 1% of the income distribution attend schools whose average quality approaches the 80th percentile. As usual, the rich middle-class gap exceeds, it doubles, the gap between average quality of college attended by middle-class students and poor ones. The pattern concerning colleges that are not just selective, but highly selective, is more extreme still. Nothing could ensure high school graduates from rich families a spot at a truly elite college. There are too many rich families and too few elite colleges for that to be possible. But selectivity effectively does ensure that high school graduates from poor and middle-class families will not attend a really elite college. From the high school class of 2004, for example, about 15% of high-income students, but only 5% of middle and 2% of low-income students, enrolled in highly selective colleges. These are large differences, and once again, the gap between the rich and the middle class massively exceeds, it more than triples, the gap between the middle class and the poor. The rates at which parents in each income bracket send their children to college, of course, determine the shares of students in college who hail from each income bracket. Small wonder, then, that college student populations skew spectacularly toward wealth. About 37% of all college students now come from households in the top quarter of the income distribution, compared to about 25% from each of the middle two quarters and 13% from the bottom quarter. The skew toward wealth within college student bodies has once again increased over time, especially since meritocracy's early democratic years. In addition, because graduation rates increase with household income, the skew to wealth among college graduates is greater still than among students. The shares of all bachelor's degrees awarded to students from the bottom quarter of the income distribution, for example, was just 10% in 2014, having declined from 12% in 1970. These inequalities, moreover, are greatest at elite colleges, and the skew toward wealth among students at the most elite colleges and universities is simply amazing. At the roughly 150 most competitive and selective, and therefore most elite, colleges, 
students from households in the top quarter of the income distribution outweigh students from households in the bottom quarter by a factor of 14 to 1, according to one study. And at the 91 most competitive colleges, the top outweigh the bottom by 24 to 1, according to another. These numbers entail that 72% of students at elite colleges come from the top quarter, and only 3% come from the bottom quarter. The tiny share from the bottom is distressing, but perhaps not surprising. The poor have never, to be sure, figured prominently among populations of any society's most elite institutions. But the skew toward wealth appears shockingly even within the top part of the income distribution. Across selective colleges, students from households in the top quarter of the income distribution outweigh students from each of the middle two quarters by between eight and four to one. At elite colleges, rich students utterly dominate not just poor students, but also students from the broad middle class. Once again, these imbalances have been rising over time, and especially over the course of meritocracy's career. Unsurprisingly, given rising educational inequality in early childhood and in high school. According to one study, the overrepresentation of the rich at elite colleges increased by roughly half between the late 1980s and the early 2000s. The abstract numbers reflect facts about concrete walks of life. A 2004 study of the most selective private universities, for example, found more freshmen whose fathers were medical doctors alone than whose fathers were hourly workers, teachers, clergy, farmers, and soldiers combined. The skew toward wealth becomes sharpest and most disturbing at the very top of the educational hierarchy. The administrations of the very most elite colleges and universities do not publish systematic and comprehensive data concerning the class backgrounds of their student bodies. But students at some of them have begun to collect and report data about themselves. Student reporting at both Harvard and Yale colleges reveals that for recent classes, the share of students from households in the top quintile of the income distribution exceeds the share from the bottom two quintiles combined by a ratio of about three and a half to one. More distressingly still, across the Ivy League, the University of Chicago, Stanford, MIT, and Duke, more students come from families in the top 1% of the income distribution than from the entire bottom half. The scale of this skew toward wealth is simply outlandish. Even Oxford and Cambridge, long-standing symbols of the intersection between social class and elite education, today enroll student bodies with substantially greater economic diversity than Harvard and Yale. These facts, taken together, paint a stark overall picture. Being born to rich parents is nearly a sufficient condition for getting a BA, and it is nearly a necessary, although not a sufficient, condition for getting a BA from an elite college. College dominates the post-high school lives of rich students, and children of rich parents dominate the student bodies of elite colleges. Whatever its origins and purposes, meritocracy now makes college a rich person's affair. College itself exacerbates the concentration of training in the elite 
extending education's special focus on the rich into adulthood, and further increasing the gap between the investments in human capital that middle class and rich people receive. Whereas organized investment in the human capital of young Americans from poor and middle class families mostly ceases at high school graduation, college initiates a new round of investment in almost all rich youth. The special investments associated with the education provided by the most competitive colleges go almost exclusively to rich youth. These investments, moreover, are massive. The distinctive investments that colleges make in educating students from rich backgrounds have been increasing steadily over recent decades. Higher education makes up 33% of all public education expenditure in the United States today. And when private expenditures are added in, colleges and universities account for 45% of total educational expenditures in the United States. The sums are staggering, both absolutely and relative to the rest of economic life. In 2014, post-secondary institutions spent $532 billion, or 3.1% of GDP, compared to $142 billion, or 2.2% of GDP, in 1970. And total investment in education in the United States approximately equals the total investment in non-residential physical capital. Yale University alone now spends many times more than the entire nation's 1840 investment in education. Strikingly, compared to other OECD countries, the United States spends a smaller-than-average share of GDP on elementary and secondary education, but nearly twice the average share on post-secondary education. Moreover, expenditures have grown significantly more rapidly than enrollments since 1970, which entails that real expenditures per student have increased by nearly 60%. Expenditures have increased most rapidly and enrollments most slowly at the most elite schools. Median real per student expenditures in the Ivy League, for example, increased by 80% between just 2001 and 2015. Competitive colleges quite generally spend much more on training their relatively richer students than non-competitive colleges spend on training their relatively less rich students. $92,000 on student-oriented programs per student per year at the most selective colleges, compared to only about $12,000 at the least selective ones. And this is five times the expenditure gap in the 1960s. A part of these rising expenditures is financed from the rising incomes of parents of the students who attend elite colleges. But the larger part, in fact, comes from subsidies paid from outside the students' families, from rich colleges' enormous endowments, and from public monies, including tax subsidies associated with colleges' charitable status. Overall, the generally rich students at the richest 10% of colleges pay just 20 cents for every dollar spent on their educations, whereas the generally poor and middle-class students at the poorest 10% of colleges pay 78 cents on the dollar. Finally, both the subsidy and especially the gap between what ordinary and elite students receive have grown dramatically over the past 50 years. 
1967, the average annual subsidy per student was about $2,500 at the least selective colleges and about $7,500 at the most selective colleges. By 2007, the average at the bottom had grown to only about $5,000, while the subsidies for schools in the 99th percentile for selectivity had ballooned to about $75,000. Once again, the skew to wealth among elite student bodies entails that the largest subsidies go to the richest students. College, simply put, not only increasingly concentrates training in students from rich households, but also increasingly subsidizes the training that the rich receive. The size of both these elements of the meritocratic inheritance is staggering. Graduate and professional school. According to a common narrative, college graduation marks the end of youth and the commencement, hence the name of the ceremony, of the earnest of adult life. The college graduate, on this account, leaves the nurture of the schoolhouse forever behind. Whatever else she learns or becomes, she must do it in the harsher circumstances of the real world. Life today defies this telling of it, however, especially among the economic elite, and the gap between imagination and reality grows steadily. At least for increasingly educated and massively trained superordinate workers, college graduation lights a path, if not at once, then foreseeably soon, not to real life, but to further schooling. Indeed, in the minds of typical students at the most elite American universities, college serves as a conduit to postgraduate schooling, in almost the same way in which high school was earlier a mere conduit to college. This additional education further focuses investments in human capital onto an increasingly skilled but also increasingly narrow elite, further expanding the gap between the investments made in the human capital of people born to rich parents and people born to everyone else. Graduate and professional school extends the meritocratic inheritance deeper still into adulthood. Graduate and professional education is a relatively recent phenomenon, and its prominence among elite workers is new. Indeed, elaborate graduate training was, until strikingly recently, not strictly required for getting elite jobs, including in the professions. Professional schools, law schools and medical schools, generally did not become graduate schools, requiring their students to have earned a BA prior to admission until the early 20th century. Most important, because they are both so numerous and so well-paid, elite bankers, consultants, and corporate executives long practiced their trades without any formal graduate education in business administration. As Nithin Noria, the dean of Harvard Business School, has observed, the mid-century American managerial elite was bound together not by university degrees, but rather family networks and religious ties. In 1900, fewer than one in five business leaders had completed college. The American professional elite managed without graduate education because it received extensive on-the-job training from its employers. Doctors acquired specialized skills as they treated patients. 
lawyers apprenticed to the offices and chambers of senior lawyers and judges. Most important, once again, managers, including elite executives, received systematic and substantial workplace training as they advanced through the elaborate managerial hierarchies that administered mid-century American firms. At IBM, for example, training for new executives began at the firm's intense Armonk Training Center and, in a sense, never ceased. Management employees typically devoted two years of their early careers to a rotating practicum through staff positions at Armonk, and they subsequently received three additional weeks of training at Armonk annually throughout their entire careers, with field training added on top. A career IBM man retiring after 40 years' service might have spent more than four years, or 10% of his work life, being trained by his employer. At Kodak, another leading light of mid-century American business, new employees received such quantities of training that the firm effectively never recruited employees over age 25. Nor were these firms outliers. The leading mid-century study of executives observed that new workers sought out workplace training and chose their firms with training in mind, and that mid-century firms answered the call. The basic executive training program at the firms that the study considered lasted fully 18 months. Firms today provide nothing remotely similar. When IBM abandoned its training-backed model of lifetime employment in the early 1990s, the shock at its headquarters was so great that company officials asked local gun shop owners to close their stores. And Kodak now expressly aspires to staff no more than one-third of its core management positions with internally trained workers. The transformation belongs to contemporary management lore. A collection of middle-aged insurance executives recently reminisced that while their own training a generation earlier had typically lasted a full year, none of their firms today any longer possesses any training program at all. The lore reflects reality as measured by data. Overall, the average U.S. firm today invests less than 2% of its payroll budget on training. Workplace training provided the fuel for the classic mid-century career arc, which focused on mobility within a single firm, from the mailroom to the corner office, as the saying went. A survey that Fortune magazine commissioned in 1952 reported that two-thirds of senior executives had worked for their current firms for over two decades. Today, the fuel is spent. The character of elite work has changed in ways that reduce the value of firm-specific knowledge and increase the value of general skills. And over the same period, the structure of elite labor markets has changed in ways that reduce the commitments between firms and their employees. Workplace hierarchies are organized by occupations rather than by firms or even industries. And employers have abandoned implicit promises, once standard among managers that competent work would merit lifetime employment and steady promotions. Instead, they offer, in the words of Apple Computer's statement to its employees, a really neat trip while you're here, during a good opportunity for both of us that is probably finite. These changes, critically, all conspire to make university degrees, rather than on-the-job training, 
confer occupational access and advancement. Effectively, every ambitious young doctor pursues not just the one-year internship traditionally required in order to obtain a general license to practice medicine, but also longer and more intensive residencies, some of which, for example, in neurosurgery, last as long as seven years. Indeed, many specialties today require further formal full-time training beyond the residency. Young lawyers, similarly, require three years of post-BA university training in law schools before they may practice law. And the nation's law schools have produced, on average, roughly 40,000 new JDs each year over the past two decades. And elite workers entering finance, consulting, and management today almost universally spend two post-BA years in university training at business schools, which produce over 100,000 new MBAs each year. Whereas a pioneering 1932 study found that 55% of top corporate managers had not even attended college, nine in 10 have completed college today. And elite managers now overwhelmingly hold MBAs or JDs. These patterns have by now become so thoroughly established, so deeply entrenched in the career paths of superordinate workers that they are taken for granted as part of the assumed background of elite life. In fact, however, they represent a profound innovation. They are less than a generation or two old. This transformation has important consequences for the distribution of training, of investments in human capital across American society. Post-BA training has long represented a substantial additional investment in the human capital of workers, and in particular, of elite workers. The mid-century American employers who provided multiple years of formal training over the course of an elite career spent substantial sums in doing so. University-based graduate and professional schools make, if anything, larger investments in their students. Expenditures per student per year at Harvard Business School have exceeded $350,000. Shifting training for elite jobs out of the workplace and into the university changes the socioeconomic composition of the people who receive the training and the investment in human capital that it imparts. Employer-provided training likely always skewed somewhat toward wealth, as the better entry-level jobs, which provided the most training, went to applicants from more elite colleges and therefore from richer families. But university-based professional training skews dramatically toward wealth, as the disproportion of rich students at elite graduate and professional schools matches and even exceeds the socioeconomic imbalance among elite college students. The one form of workplace training that survives and indeed thrives today, the unpaid internship, similarly favors young workers from wealthy backgrounds who are disproportionately able to afford working for free. This should not come as any surprise. Most immediately, graduate and professional schools are academically competitive, and the most elite schools are immensely competitive, indeed more competitive than even the most elite colleges. The median student at Yale Law School, for example, earned effectively straight A's in college for a 3.9 GPA and scored above the 99th percentile on the LSAT. 
the median student at Harvard Business School has a 3.7 college GPA and a GMAT score in the 96th percentile. And the median student at Stanford Medical School has a 3.85 GPA and an MCAT score in the 97th percentile. These students, moreover, overwhelmingly receive their grades at elite colleges, and the students at the most elite graduate and professional schools overwhelmingly receive their BAs at the most elite colleges. 40% of the Yale Law School student body attended an Ivy League college, and fully 25% attended Harvard, Princeton, or Yale. The student bodies of these colleges, of course, themselves skew massively toward wealth. And graduate and professional schools that draw overwhelmingly from them cannot help but replicate the skew. Moreover, graduate and professional school is once again expensive. Necessary and unavoidable direct costs, tuition and fees, at elite professional schools are quite as high as at elite colleges, and in many cases even higher. Yale Law School's annual tuition is about $60,000, and Harvard Business School charges over $70,000. These prices cover tuition only, moreover, not including room and board. Once those expenses are added in, Yale Law estimates that a single student should expect to pay more than $80,000 over just the nine-month school year, and Harvard Business School estimates the total nine-month cost at more than $105,000. Students report that full social participation adds $20,000 to the cost of the MBA and may be foregone only at the risk of being excluded from the intellectual and networking benefits of student life. The indirect opportunity costs of a professional degree, measured by the income foregone during the additional years in school, equal or even exceed the direct costs. These effects, no doubt, combined with unidentified others, again produce an almost inconceivable socioeconomic imbalance in the student bodies of elite graduate and professional schools. Systematic and general data remain scarce. The skew to wealth is too extreme to be picked up by public data sets, which typically combine the broad elite into a single income category, and therefore frustrate efforts to draw distinctions within the top few percent of the economic distribution. And universities themselves do not advertise a skew that they properly regard as embarrassing. But unofficial sources sustain increasingly confident judgments about the elite professional students' family wealth. Harvard Business School students, discussing the social participation fees mentioned earlier, characterized those costs as only $20,000, which gives a pretty good sense of their background wealth. And a recent systematic study of family background undertaken by Yale Law students confirms a massive skew toward wealth. More Yale Law students grew up in households in the top 1% of the income distribution than in the entire bottom half, roughly 12% to roughly 9%. The median Yale Law student grew up in a family whose household income was roughly $150,000 annually, the top fifth of the overall income distribution, and less than 3% of Yale Law students grew up in or near poverty. 
it is hard to conceive of a more socioeconomically elite student body. And although precise microdata for other elite graduate and professional schools are not public, there is no reason to think that Harvard Business School and Yale Law School are outliers. To the contrary, a broad survey of law schools reveals that nearly two-thirds of students at top-tier law schools have at least one professional parent who holds a post-BA degree, and more than a third have two professional parents. Workplace training once carried the democratic impulses that early meritocrats brought to education into adulthood, allowing workers to advance through a firm's hierarchy regardless of their background. Meritocracy's subsequent history, however, has betrayed these impulses. And today, meritocracy displaces workplace training in favor of university-based education. Elite graduate and professional schools now both extend the massive excess investments in rich students' human capital deep into adult life and concentrate these investments on an almost unimaginably exclusive socioeconomic elite, at once increasing and narrowing the meritocratic inheritance. They draw the concentration of training and education in the United States today to a spiky fine point. Valuing the elite's inheritance. Meritocrats may be made rather than born, but they are not self-made. Elite and ordinary educations differ in almost every imaginable way, concerning the personnel, settings, styles, purposes, and programs of study through which they proceed. The differences accumulate to shepherd the elaborately educated children of rich parents into a distinctive way of life, one conspicuously consonant with the way of life adopted by adults in the superordinate working class. No simple characterization can fully capture this form of life's distinguishing marks, and no single scale can measure the distance that separates elite education from its ordinary counterpart. The elite education that enfolds rich children is in this respect, again, no different from the superordinate work that dominates the lives of rich adults. The connection between elite education and superordinate labor suggests, however, that a summary measure of the gap between the educations received by the rich and the rest can capture the essence of educational inequality, much as the top 1%'s income share clarifies economic inequality among adults. The association between elite education and top labor incomes, moreover, provides a guide to building the statistic. Labor income represents a return on a worker's human capital, and education, alongside all its other faces, builds and increases a student's human capital. To construct a summary measure of the exceptional educations received by children of rich parents, therefore, strip away all the cultural context and institutional detail that surrounds elite education and ignore the direct, personal, and in-kind investments that elite parents make in raising and training their children. Instead, treat education simply as an investment in human capital, susceptible of measurement by dollar sums. Then ask how much more is invested in educating a typical rich child than is invested in educating a typical middle-class child. How much more is invested in a typical child from a 1%er household in Palo Alto 
than in a typical child from a middle-class household in St. Clair Shores. The detailed story just rehearsed supports rough but conservative estimates of the critical dollar sums. $10,000 to $15,000 per year in preschool, $20,000 to $25,000 per year in elementary school, $50,000 to $60,000 per year in middle and high school, and $90,000 per year in college and professional school. Finally, to resolve these investments, made yearly over the course of an elite childhood, into a single sum, place the present-day elite's investments in human capital into historical perspective. The old leisure class derived its income and status principally from returns to accumulated physical and financial capital. Elite parents, embedded in the old social and economic order, naturally devoted far fewer resources to educating their children, both absolutely and relative to their middle-class counterparts. Instead, the old elite promoted its children's income and status and ensured the dynastic transmission of wealth and privilege through gifts of physical and financial capital, of land and factories, stocks and bonds. Typically, these gifts came as testamentary bequests given by dying parents to children as heirs. The old mode of dynastic transmission of wealth reflected the dominant form of the wealth that it transmitted. The meritocratic elite, by contrast, is constituted not by leisure and capital income, but instead through superordinate labor. Elite parents today, embedded in the new order, naturally provide their children with a social and economic basis for membership in the superordinate working class. Investments in human capital, made while parents are still alive, have replaced bequests of physical and financial capital as the dominant means for conveying elite status down through the generations. This makes it natural to sum up these investments by calculating the size of the traditional bequest that they displace. To do this, imagine that the difference between the resources devoted to training a child from a typical one-percenter household and the resources devoted to training a typical middle-class child were taken each year and invested in a trust fund to be given to the rich child as a bequest on the death of his or her parents. Then calculate the size of the bequest. The exact results of this exercise depend on any number of assumptions, and so the outcome should not be accorded inapt precision. Nevertheless, a reasonable estimate, robust in the face of variations in the background assumptions, can be constructed. And the results of the exercise are truly astonishing. The excess investments in human capital made in a typical rich household, over and above the educational investments made not just in poor, but also in middle-class households, today are equivalent to a traditional inheritance in the neighborhood of $10 million per child. $10 million per child. This sum values an elite child's meritocratic inheritance. It is an inheritance because it runs from parents to children and promotes an elite family's dynastic ambitions. It is meritocratic in two senses. First, the education that the inheritance buys ruthlessly promotes and rewards achievement. Elite parents, tutors, and teachers all engage the child 
with the deliberate aim of building skills and accomplishments. And elite schools promote hard-nosed competition for places and, once students are admitted, for grades. And second, the child's inheritance qualifies it for the ruthlessly competitive and performance-based world of meritocratic work. The elite's enormous investment in its children's education, enormous both absolutely and relative to the educational expenditures of the middle class, represents a new and distinctively meritocratic technology of dynastic succession, truly a revolution in family wealth transmission. Rich parents and rich children both gravitate naturally toward human capital as the preferred means for passing income and status down through the generations. This is why total education expenditure today grows more rapidly with rising income than does expenditure on any other major category of consumption, and why inequality in expenditures on education has in recent decades increased more rapidly even than income inequality. Indeed, meritocracy's imaginative hold over today's elite is so powerful that even the super-rich, who own enough physical and financial capital to secure dynastic succession through traditional bequests, nevertheless commonly give their children a meritocratic inheritance, often, as in Mark Zuckerberg's case, as their principal or exclusive bequest. The economic and social transformation from a society led by a hereditary leisured elite to a society led by the working rich rationalizes these practices. The meritocratic inheritance, the immense excess investments that rich parents make in their children's human capital, over and above what middle-class children receive, dominates dynastic succession in a meritocratic world. Elite education brokers the dynastic transfer. Elite labor income pays out the value of the meritocratic inheritance that education builds. The End of Opportunity Although meritocracy once opened up the elite to outsiders, the meritocratic inheritance now drives a wedge between meritocracy and opportunity. As the family becomes a site of production rather than consumption, and children become accumulators of human capital, the differences between elite and middle-class upbringing become economic rather than merely cultural or aesthetic, and moreover, project themselves deep into adult life. These arrangements make meritocracy an engine of dynastic privilege, excluding poor and middle-class children from the basis of future income and status. Despite the motives that led to its adoption, meritocracy no longer promotes equality of social and economic opportunity, as it was intended and expected to do. To the contrary, the social and economic inequalities that now burden America have distinctively meritocratic roots. Meritocracy's early career fulfilled the hopes that led Brewster and other mid-century reformers to embrace it. The aristocratic elite that meritocracy was designed to unseat lacked both the motive and the capacity to train its children to thrive in a competitive world. But it was inevitable that mature meritocracy should now undermine those hopes, and only meritocracy's enduring charisma makes it surprising. The meritocrats who make up the new elite having achieved their own status by winning competitions at their own intensive schools and superordinate jobs, possess an unprecedented 
taste and aptitude for training their children. Because training and education work, rich children systematically outperform the rest. Again, not just the poor, but also the middle class at each stage of their education. At every stage of childhood, extravagant investments in the human capital of rich children produce exceptional performances by these children, which then interact with meritocratic selection criteria at the next stage in order to deepen and extend excess investments and exceptional achievements going forward, right through childhood and youth and into adulthood. The result of this mechanism is that by the end of the process, the new generation of superordinate workers is overwhelmingly composed of children from the present generation. And at every stage, elite parents secure these advantages for their children, principally by deploying rather than circumventing meritocracy's standards and methods. Today's dynasties are built on the meritocratic inheritance. To be sure, academically qualified students from poor and even middle-class families face social and financial obstacles to graduating from college, and especially with elite degrees, that students from rich families do not. As a result, high school graduates from middle-class and poor backgrounds sometimes do not pursue or complete the college educations that their earlier academic achievements qualify them for. But this undermatching, although real, is too small to account for the skew toward wealth among college students, especially at the most elite schools, which contribute the most to the human capital of the next generation of superordinate workers. The unequal educations leading up to the SAT mean that there are simply not enough really high-achieving high school graduates from outside the economic elite to make much of an impact at the most selective colleges. And there are too many from within the elite for the student bodies at these colleges to skew any way except toward wealth. Even the most capable and ambitious working and middle-class students, cobbling together an education out of the generous but ad hoc attentions of a few exceptionally devoted teachers supplemented by their own energy and ingenuity, as when one student from South Los Angeles taught himself about the world by watching Jeopardy, cannot reliably compete with the thousands of hours and millions of dollars invested in rich children. Indeed, even as the academic achievement of low-income high school graduates has increased in recent decades, undermatching has declined. Today, even perfect matching would not materially increase the share of students at elite colleges who hail from low-income households. The composition of the rising elite confirms this conclusion and demonstrates that meritocratic inequality draws wealth and achievement together, so that the richest and the highest-performing students are now overwhelmingly one and the same. Elite student bodies skew not just to wealth, but also to academic achievement. Indeed, the best universities enroll the vast majority of the most capable students. Roughly 80,000 students score above 700 on the SAT's critical reading test in a typical year. Just the top 20 colleges in the U.S. News and World Report rankings enroll fully a quarter of these. And the top five law schools enroll roughly two-thirds of applicants with LSAT scores in the 99th percentile. 
The old aristocrats were vulnerable to meritocratic competition because they bred underachievers. But the new meritocrats raise overachievers and therefore dominate meritocratic competition. The principal source of the skew toward wealth among college students, and especially among students at the most competitive colleges, is academic rather than narrowly financial or even cultural. The skew toward wealth does not reflect a breakdown of meritocracy so much as meritocracy's triumph. Towering educational inequality reveals the inner logic of meritocratic inequality in its dark action. Finally, the meritocratic approach to dynastic succession confers one more advantage on the elite, which distinguishes the meritocratic inheritance from its aristocratic predecessor. Whereas inherited physical and financial wealth famously breeds temptations toward profligacy and therefore its own dissolution, hence the early 20th century saying that a family might go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, human capital resists being wasted by those who are given it. The studious self-discipline that a young person must develop in order to participate in building up her human capital inspires an adult inclination not to squander it. Law, moreover, backs up this inclination. An owner cannot extract rents from her human capital without mixing it with her own contemporaneous labor. And the legal regime governing work, which permits wage labor but forbids slavery, prevents owners from selling their human capital apart from and in advance of mixing it with their labor. Indeed, because children do not inherit their parents' debts, human capital is proof against the profligacy of the prior generation also. Finally, because most education is paid for while students are still children, transfers of human capital are effectively exempted from gift and inheritance taxes. Human capital, in sharp contrast to physical and financial capital, is therefore structured psychologically, economically, and even legally, to resist being dissipated by its owners. Finally, the structures that have grown up around the superordinate working class, the social practices and institutions of elite education described earlier, support not just the husbanding of human capital by children who have received it from their parents, but also the renewed transmission of human capital to their own children in the next generation down the dynastic line. In all these respects, the meritocratic approach to dynasty building mimics the truly hereditary birthright aristocracy that for centuries dominated elite life. Education assumes the role in meritocracy that breeding played in the aristocratic regime, and superordinate labor takes on the role once played by hereditary landedness. The mid-century regime in which formerly equal persons were differentiated not by breeding, but by contingent inheritances of physical and financial capital, is revealed by this light as an interregnum rather than a stepping stone on the path of progress. The increasing monopoly that elite families exercise over pathways to income and status, and the increasing exclusion of not just poor but also middle-class children from elite training and thus also work, realize rather than retreat from meritocratic values. 
The dynastic character of privilege does not reflect the corruption so much as the consummation of the meritocratic regime. Even the rare exceptions to this monopoly, which occur when unusually talented or lucky children without rich parents break into the educated elite, serve principally to legitimate meritocracy by distinguishing this regime from one based immediately on breeding, and perhaps also by leavening the meritocratic loaf with some energy from the outside. Indeed, meritocracy appears poised to produce a system of intergenerational privilege more enduring than the mid-century mechanisms involving inheritance of physical and financial capital that meritocracy defeated and then replaced, a dynastic structure that closely resembles an earlier hereditary aristocracy in form and perhaps longevity. No wonder, therefore, that Kingman Brewster, attacked as a traitor by the mid-century's moneyed, leisured class, is today hailed as Yale's greatest president. He is a hero to the new meritocratic elite that his reforms created and now sustain, with no end in sight. No wonder, but an irony, as the regime that Brewster helped to inaugurate now oppresses the elite that it also powerfully favors. An Exclusive Ordeal Hunter College High School in Manhattan is one of the most elite and competitive public schools in the country. Attendance at Hunter College High immensely increases a New York City public school student's chances of academic success in college admissions and economic success in life. 25% of the school's graduates are admitted to Ivy League colleges. Hunter High is therefore badly oversubscribed, with 10 times more applicants than spaces. The school, moreover, has for decades admitted its students exclusively on account of their performance on a rigorous entrance examination, so through a pure meritocracy. The exam system, like every meritocracy, favors prepared candidates, and the majority of admitted students now engage test preparation services to help improve their scores on the school's entrance exam. Preparation for its part is expensive and therefore favors the wealthy. And indeed, the student body that Hunter High composes in this way has over recent decades skewed increasingly toward children from rich families. Only 10% of Hunter students come from households poor enough, household income below roughly $45,000 annually, to receive subsidized school lunches, compared to 75% in the New York City public schools generally. In addition, the racial composition of the school changed. Between 1995 and 2010, the percentages of Black and Hispanic students in the entering 7th grade class fell by factors of 4 and 6. As New Yorkers began to realize that meritocracy thwarted equal opportunity, Hunter High found itself at the center of a political whirlwind. Many of the school's students and teachers, as well as its sitting principal, concluded that the health of the school depended on relaxing the entrance competition to take into account factors besides performance on the examination. The president of Hunter College, who oversees the high school, disagreed. And so, just weeks before Hunter High graduate Elena Kagan's confirmation as a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, the school's principal 
resigned in controversy, leaving Hunter to search for its fourth new head in five years. The conflict at Hunter High also had a second dimension that was perhaps thornier, but no less consequential. Even the elite children whom the school's meritocratic practices seemed to serve started to complain, as the school's workload, pressure, and stratification became oppressive. The school would begin in the next year to experiment with homework holidays in order to relieve student stress. But elite discontent inside the school had stripped the meritocrats of some of their enthusiasm and self-confidence in the conflict over admissions. And the accommodations that Hunter High made on behalf of its students undermined the meritocrats' position in principle. How could the school justify excluding outsiders simply because they do not measure up according to a principle that the school is prepared to relax when insiders need shelter from its harsh effects? The local squabble over Hunter High played out a dark dynamic that applies to meritocratic education quite generally. The value to me of my education, a well-known economist once observed, depends not only on how much I have, but also on how much the man ahead of me in the job line has. This remains so, moreover, regardless of how much education, absolutely, the person ahead of me and I both possess. Meritocratic education, at Hunter High and across the country, plays out the consequences of the peculiar logic to devastating effects. On the one hand, and in contrast to ordinary goods, when elites buy extravagant education, they directly diminish the educations that everyone else has. When the rich buy expensive chocolate, this does not make the middle class's cheap chocolate taste worse. But when the rich make exceptional investments in schooling, this does reduce the value of ordinary middle-class training and degrees. The parents who buy test preparation for their children reduce everyone else's chance of getting into Hunter High. And the intensive education that Hunter High provides to its students reduces everyone else's chances of getting into Harvard. Every meritocratic success necessarily breeds a flip side of failure. On the other hand, Educational competition within the elite removes an important break on consumption that restrains demand for ordinary goods in the face of rising incomes. The rich become sated on chocolate, but they do not become sated on schooling. Instead, they invest more and more and more in educating their children in an effort to outdo one another. The maximum is set only by physical and psychological constraints on the children's capacity to absorb training. In the crassest limit, the fact that schools and the parents who pay for them can hire only one teacher to engage their students at a time, and that children, for their part, can study only so many hours in a day. Meritocratic education inexorably engenders a wasteful and destructive educational arms race, which ultimately benefits no one, not even the victors. Meritocratic education in America is in both respects approaching its outer limits. The most elite schools and universities serve almost only students from families rich enough to pay the cost of limit-case schooling, and they serve them, in human terms, increasingly badly. The students at Hunter High, as at Phillips Exeter Academy, and as at Harvard and Yale, 
approach their schooling with a compulsive fixation on the competition that they are in and the prizes that they seek. Not just languid play and decadent amusements, but also deep reflection and an intrinsic love of learning are becoming historical curiosities, memories of life outside the meritocracy trap. The young rich today diligently study and doggedly train with a constant eye on tests and admissions competitions, intent on acquiring and then demonstrating the human capital needed to sustain them as superordinate workers in adulthood. Their parents, moreover, organize much of adult life around the competition to preserve caste. They read, study, train, worry, and even marry and stay married alongside their children and on account of ambitions for their children. Helicopter parenting is just superordinate labor applied to the project of reproducing status in a meritocratic regime. The strain of all this competitive effort builds over time to produce measurable harms. In wealthy districts of Seoul, where students work harder than any place else in the world, the rates of curvature of the spine have more than doubled in the last decade, and doctors have named a new malady, turtleneck syndrome, in which a child's head hunches forward anxiously. At Yale Law School, 70% of survey respondents, students whose professional and material prospects have never been better, affirmed that they had experienced mental health challenges while at Yale. Their principal complaints, anxiety, depression, panic attacks, and recurrent insomnia, all involve one or another form of nervous exhaustion. If an Ivy League education was once a patina that burnished a carefree hereditary elite, it has become an open scramble to acquire or retain an elite status that must be won and may be lost. Meritocratic education also produces harms that are less measurable, but no less important. A life subsumed by competition infects students with shallow ambitions and deep and pervasive fears of failure. The infection has grown so severe that an entire genre is now devoted to describing it. Critics variously call elite students very smart but completely confused with no idea what to do next, zombies, or in perhaps the most memorable phrase in the genre, excellent sheep. When a group of elite professional school students was recently asked who among them would be willing to spend 15 hours per week on an intrinsically worthless task in order to gain a career advantage, all said that they would, and moreover, expressed surprise at the question. Critics of elite education commonly cast its ills as reflecting weaknesses or even vices among the elite. Some critics frame their complaints in overly moralizing terms, accusing self-serving, precious, and smothering parents of raising gutless, mercenary children. Others emphasize intellectual failings and charge that the rich lack perspective, self-awareness, or an appropriate concern for their own human development, because, as David Foster Wallace prominently charged, they have been taught and complacently believe that a self is something you just have. These complaints resemble the charges considered earlier, that attribute top incomes to rent-seeking or even fraud. Both attacks succumb to meritocracy's charisma, 
instinctually assuming that any evil observed in meritocracy's orbit must reflect a corruption or perversion of the meritocratic order. In fact, however, a deeper and darker logic is again at play. The flaws of elite education do not arise because rich parents and children are unusually venal or stupid or otherwise callow. Instead, they follow inexorably from meritocratic inequalities' internal dynamics. Where schooling is so competitive and performance in school determines so much, only outliers can afford to ignore education's instrumental functions and focus on its intrinsic worth. Saints, who are indifferent to income and status, and geniuses, who win the meritocratic race even without competing, might pursue meritocratic education for its own sake. But students of only ordinary virtue and ability must keep their eyes trained steadily on the meritocratic prize. Adulthood sets childhood's agenda, and work remakes family in its image. The mimicry by the school of the workplace that once led radical critics to charge that schooling in capitalist America aimed to train working-class children to accept domination by capital on entering the workforce is alive and well today. Only now, the pattern applies most dramatically within the elite. Elite schooling is carefully calibrated to train students to withstand the distractions of their immediate circumstances and to resist the urge to pursue their own peculiar, authentic interests in favor of doggedly shaping themselves to serve ends set externally by the meritocratic system. Far from assuming that a self is something a person simply has, meritocratic education expressly frames elite childhood as a conscious effort to build a self that will warrant success on merit. Elite schooling, exquisitely calibrated to build and measure the self as human capital, trains elite workers in the meritocratic art of instrumentalizing and exploiting themselves. Once again, the rich, who after all capture the massive rewards of their own exploitation, are in no position to issue moral complaints. But meritocratic education is nevertheless a costly mechanism for the dynastic transmission of privilege down through the generations, and its effectiveness does not defray its costs. Benign neglect for parents and free play for children have been displaced by constant supervision and intense effort. Parents whose home lives once revolved around adult society now orient their domestic affairs intently toward training their children, and children who once lived carelessly in the present now prepare anxiously to secure their futures. The rich family, long devoted to consumption, has itself become a site of investment and production, aimed at building up the human capital of the next generation. The $10 million meritocratic inheritance measures the financial costs of the new regime. The exhausted, anxious inauthenticity that elite students suffer measures its human costs. In both respects, the iniquities of the parents are visited upon the children, down through the generations.